0: Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Jim Capretta, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI and the Milton Friedman chair. He studies healthcare, entitlement programs, and fiscal trends in advanced economies, He's also a member of the advisory board of the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. And before joining us at AEI, he spent more than 16 years in public service working at the White House's Office of Management and Budget, the Senate Budget Committee, and the House Committee on Ways and Means. And today we're going to talk a lot about his latest book, U.S. Health Policy and Market Reforms, an introduction, which was released this fall. Welcome to Banter, Jim.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Jim's book is really great. It's a great, easy um, or, or comfortable read to get you an introduction to the healthcare care um, policy world. And, of course, Jim is a hero around this town. Everyone who cares deeply about this issue knows and respects and honors him. And he's just an absolute straight shooter. He's the, he's the best. Thank and, you very much for saying and that. And this book is – and I've been – you know, I'm a little bit related to this issue. I'm a little bit different set of safety net issues – but uh, this book is the, the best single volume I've ever read that described the opportunities for healthcare care reform uh, in, coming in the coming in the, in the next couple of years. I think there's some opportunities here. But there's also some news in mm-hmm. this because, you know, Jim works. He doesn't like to admit it, but he works at a right wing think tank. <laughs> and uh, we normally, uh, uh, you know, rail against things that government controls and runs and predominantly is a big player in. But Jim acknowledges that that's the way it is, and that's the way it's going to stay. Am I right about that?
1: I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, yes. I've, I, what I say in the book is that, um, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, that the the book says that look, there's a mix of private and public in American healthcare, and what we're going to have to do is figure out the balance that we find comfortable. The current balance is not working very well. There's lots of dysfunction. Some of it caused by poor regulation, some of it caused by excessive subsidies. And so there's lots of opportunity to pull back on the governmental role. But the idea that you're going to go toward kind of a really minimalist government role in healthcare seems very unlikely because, you know, low-income people are going to need assistance to get into the health system. And, and there needs to be some regulation to protect people who are very sick.
2: And it's not just low-income people and, and, and sick people. It's also hospitals and doctors and and insurance companies that are so intertwined in the current system that they're just not, it's just, it's too big to change in in a radical way. I think that's your point.
1: Yeah. There's some of that too. Remember, you're not going to, you're not, you're never going to get to a system where someone goes and sees an unregulated physician, right? I mean, starting with the basic fact, there's a credentialing system Mm -hmm. that people entrust the government with to say, Hey, we want to make sure these physicians are well-trained and you know, know what they're doing before they start, you know, taking and messing with people's health. So there's an aspect right away where the public's involved in saying who gets to practice medicine, what institutions get to take care of people. So by definition, you're into a more restricted supply side mm-hmm. because the government's involved in deciding who gets to participate in this and who doesn't.
2: So in the book, you sort of set
1: up these these
2: various options. And you, you one is is the popular, and we've all heard about it. Medicare for all, which is even more totally government controlled and price setting uh, for healthcare for everybody, whether they're in the Medicare, Medicaid or an employer sponsored healthcare. And then the other is the radical sort of libertarian market base, which you don't think will ever really happen. And then you say, but there are things we can do in the existing system that bring in competition and consumer choice. Um, So and those you think will uh, provide discipline and lower costs and better outcomes. Uh, so you you talk, describe two kinds of areas, broad areas of this competition. One is plan level competition, and the other is direct consumer uh, shopping. Could you just tell us what the difference of what what those are, and 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 why you think those are the, the sort of broad ways to think about competition in the healthcare business? Yeah,
1: that's good. Uh, I I think that the average consumer out there thinks of uh, competition. As being, you know, they're involved with, you know, deciding where to get care and price shopping for healthcare. And to some degree, that is a possibility that can be pursued in a major way in healthcare. It's not being done very well now. And we can get into more about how to make it work. Mm-hmm. But that's only going to be maybe about 40% of healthcare or so. That is services that are shoppable, that have some discretion, can be scheduled. I mean, there's a lot of healthcare, as you probably all well understand. That is, someone shows up, something's wrong, the physician tries to figure out what's wrong with them, takes a little while, it's not clear right at the get-go what they're going to need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly a lot of people who end up in a, uh, with a cancer diagnosis, you know, the clinical pathway is dependent on lots of variables that are only known three, four, six months down the road. So what I'm trying to say here is that that kind of healthcare, which is often very expensive for you know, people with really serious medical conditions, um, that needs to be managed in a different way than just assuming the patient is going to shop around for their services. Now, having said that, there are a lot of surgeries, primary care, management of chronic diseases, lots of services that are known and predictable and can be scheduled. That can be shopped for. So, Well, this just is stop there s-
2: on the consumer yeah. shopping because I, I got the impression that you, it's a thing you'd like to have happen and you'd like to see more of. But in this market, isn't there a lot of evidence that consumers just don't take advantage of their opportunity to shop? And so you you set up this market and you're hoping that the shopping will lead to the discipline and the lower prices and the competition, but then consumers don't take advantage of it. Is that right? That
1: is right. And uh, there are two reasons for that, really. One is that um, the way the system is set up, it's almost impossible now, although that's changing for consumers to figure out easily and exactly and precisely what their options are and the price differences. Mm-hmm. So it is happening to some degree on a small level, but not very much. The second part is because of the overlay of insurance, a lot of times they're price insensitive. It doesn't really matter what yeah. the price differences are because, you know, once they pay their deductible, they're into insurance coverage. It doesn't really matter if one costs $500 more than the other. The insurance plan is going to pay for it. And they don't get to share in the savings if they pick the lower-priced option. So those two things really need to change. I would say the book really emphasizes two things there, standardization and sharing in the savings whenever you pick something that is lower-priced, regardless of where you are in your insurance plan deductible. So when
2: I read the book, I thought that the direct consumer shopping was less of of a, a great opportunity for reform that could lead to savings and greater efficiencies. Then the plan level competition. And you you went to you, you told the to describe consumer level set first, but tell about plan level competition and, and hasn't that led to some reduction in costs and greater efficiencies?
1: Very much so. So there's a there's a whole industry that's been around for three or four decades, you know, managed care, right? And you know, there's a, a mountain of studies showing that good managed care, properly done, where where there's a plan involved in looking at the clinical protocols that people pass through when they have various diagnoses, um, that that can cut costs relative to just sort of an unmanaged free-for-all system. Okay. So think of, you know, the typical HMO, right? So there are a lot of HMOs out there and they are, they tend to be lower cost than a totally unmanaged system where the patient in effect navigates themselves through the system. So Uh, If you start setting up competition between the HMOs and other managed care plans and making it a real premium competition between them, you have the opportunity to drive them to do even better, to drive even more waste out of the system through the requirements they put on their contracting, who they hire in-house, et cetera. So, you know, there's a big HMO on the West Coast and also nationally, Kaiser. I mean, they've been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, some people like them, some people don't like them, but- like or not, I mean they do run a pretty tight ship when they want to, and so they've driven efficiencies and
2: lower costs. They have, yes. Um, so you're, uh, I don't take this wrong. You're a Washington guy, and so you're watching what's going to happen in Congress, and 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 so in these two areas of reform, consumer shopping, market discipline, or plan, uh, plan market, plan level competition, are, are there specific? And I, I, I don't want you to get you know right into the nitty gritty reforms or, or tweaks or fixes to this big system you you'd like to see a congressman pick up in the next term and when 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 the, the new people come to washington next january
1: well that's a nice target i mean i have a whole long list but i'm going to pick three okay Good. that's what i want <laughs> all right so yeah, let's we'll start we'll Get, with we'll get the, excited we'll about it start, start with the We're gonna make them happen <laughs> start with the hardest one which is premium support in medicare okay so medicare is the big player in healthcare. And if you want competition to start spreading, you got to have a little bit of it going on in Medicare because Medicare sets the tone for the whole system. Okay? And the way to bring competition into Medicare first is through this old idea called premium support. Basically, it says to the people who are picking between Medicare Advantage plans and the traditional program, we're going to set up a bidding system, and the government's going to pay the average. So if you pick one that's less than average in terms of its premium cost, you get to save some money. Pick one that's more costly than average, you're going to have to pay a little more out of your pocket in terms of the premium you pay. So it's setting up a competition and exactly back to where we were before the plan level competition. Plan level competition. This in is a, Medicare. In Medicare, lots of the infrastructure is already there. We already have a huge private plan presence in Medicare, half the program already. Okay. So if you start getting them bidding and competing more vigorously against each other with standardized benefits, and setting the premium from the government based on the bids, you get some competition going. It's through. so the healthcare policy world
2: is so complicated. I mean, I, I I didn't know that premium support was the name for bringing competition to the Medicare world. Well, I'm so glad we <laughs> talked about <laughs> yeah, it because premium support sounds complicated, I mean, and actually, to me, it sounds like another government benefit. You're going to
1: give people <laughs> more money, yeah. but
2: you're actually challenging them to save money absolutely or pay more money in
1: fact see, what little known is that cbo has analyzed this thing right okay. so people don't even know that cbo issued a report on this a few years ago that basically said it would save a pretty good amount of money about eight percent of total cost so that's one a favor that's your that's your first favorite yeah. give me another one the second one is on that price transparency consumer shopping side the congress really ought to take one step further and say you know when the doctors and hospitals are disclosing their prices they need to do it in a standardized, understandable, consumer focused way. So, when you go get, let's say you need a hip replacement. Mm-hmm. Okay. What my if you wife, said My wife just had a hip replacement, she enormously successful. <laughs> Thank in fact,
2: you. my personal experience with the healthcare industry in the last five years has been all Wonder. positive. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm glad to hear that. Yes, yes. I'm Glad to hear that. That's why we're here. Well, yes. uh, it's because yeah, a lot of it was paid for by your insurance plan. But anyway, that's another well, long story. But, doctors uh, and nurses did a good job. They did, exactly. Be nicer we got people. a lot of good They're health nice care. nice people. We have a lot of good health care in the United States. We do. But anyway, what if you said to every uh, surgeon out there, if they want to do hip replacements, they need to disclose an all-in price that they will charge for that and let anybody who comes to them take that price. Okay. And then you say to the insurance plans- We don't do that now? No. We don't require them to do that. No. Now, it's starting to move in that direction. We have something called the No Surprises Act that has good faith estimates being produced for people who are uninsured and cash pay. But if you just did a walk-up price for anybody, insured or not, that says, look, here's your all-in price for what you need, and then said to the insurance plans, you got to give the people who are even signed up for insurance whatever you would have paid as a median for the market and you're in let them take that cash and apply it to that surgeon that they pick on their own and at that point you start to have some real price shopping because look if the insurance money is available to the person and they can look around and find the best orthopedic surgeon for the value in terms of the price they're charging some of them might actually save some money and by the way by they taking this medium cash value yeah and they might find a doctor who's charging
2: less Exactly. And, so and then them, they get to keep the money keep themselves. Money. Okay, that'd be good. I like that. That would idea. be good. Yeah.
1: So, anyway, that would be the next idea. And then the third one is the one I think you're going <laughs> to react to, which is we got to do something a little bit on the employer side to move it toward kind of a premium support idea in the employer setting. Well,
2: are you gonna? Are we getting to the your replacement for the Cadillac tax? Is that what yeah, you are going to talk? We about? We could talk about. <laughs> that, okay, so just, but just I don't little background, listeners. Little, but is that what you were going to say? Is your one thing you like the new? That's tax the third. Credit?
1: That's the third. thing. Okay, right now, so yeah. so,
2: you know, Jim, like all Washington policymakers, he wants to do something. He's discovered that the, the way to make it go through Congress in some way, or at least get some positive media attention, is to call it a tax credit, which is what you've done. I did. You have replaced. The tax. It's a great
0: common sense. We yeah, applaud that. Yes, that's right.
2: <laughs> they, for a long time, Jim and his 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 crowd wanted to tax the value of employer provided health insurance that you and I, Phoebe, get. Mm-hmm. They she, they wanted to tax us, and on that because it would discourage us from getting such generous and expensive plans. Um, but that failed. You you can't get that <laughs> through Congress. So now, what are you proposing? <laughs>
0: A great lead up your there. <laughs> your,
1: first of all, I would still favor taxing your health benefits. So if if a Congress was elected that looked like it it could pass and would want to support such a policy change, I'd applaud it all the way through. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, having said that, there was something called the Cadillac tax enacted in the Affordable Care Act by President Obama. Okay, so this is a. And a Democratic Congress, no, no Republican votes. Yes. And it was sort of an indirect way of taxing health benefits provided by an employer because the tax applied really to the employer, not so much to the value that the employees were getting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it had some issues, and it was very politically contentious and got repealed. Instead of that, what if we said to the employer community, look, you don't have to do this, but we're going to offer you a, a per- enrollee tax credit for every employee and their family member you sign up for health coverage will give you a certain dollar amount and that dollar amount that will come with some conditions we need you to run these health benefits in a more disciplined way we want some more competition we want more premium support competition remember fixed value dollar contributions so that the employee has some incentive to pick the lower priced managed care plan not the higher priced managed care Mm -hmm. plan Okay, so you got to incent the employers to do it. Now, why is it important to have something like this? Let me have one more point here before you jump in. This is a collective action problem. You know, if one employer is not going to do this on their own, right? Because the health benefit is like compensation. It's intended to attract people to the employer. And if one employer looks like they're being tougher on their health benefit than another employer in the same industry, they're worried about losing the good people, the good workers to their competitor, Mm -hmm. So you need to push all of the employers basically in the same direction through public policy. This is one area where a nudge from public policy is going to be crucial because they won't act on their own because it really is intended to be compensation. Okay.
2: So I I don't want to make you and Phoebe uncomfortable, but I'm an employer. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're telling me that the federal government should give me money if I promise to shop for your health insurance in a smarter way. Essentially.
1: But I, I didn't get to all the conditions that were attached to that
2: money. But but that's what I wanted to ask: is well, how would I shop for your health insurance in a smarter way? Why don't I just do it on my own out of
1: civic responsibility? If you well, that's what I just said. You won't do it out of civic responsibility because you're worried about losing the good employees at AEI to some other competitor think tank to be not to be named, (laughs) not to be named. Okay, so you are competing for people, yes, against universities or wherever, right? and um, you need to, you want to offer a good health benefit as part of the compensation package. However, if you were offered a federal tax credit that said, here, we're going to help you pay for this a little bit, but you got to, it comes with some conditions. One of the conditions we didn't get to yet is that the dollar amount of your contribution as an employer has to be less so that this whole thing doesn't cost the taxpayers even more money. There has to be an adjustment to make sure that this is – basically neutral as a tax policy to the federal government we haven't even talked about the fact that so the federal government is bribing me to, to find a cheaper health insurance plan essentially yes and to pay a little bit less on a fixed contribution basis now it's voluntary right okay. so uh, how, how much take up we'd have of this would be a little bit unclear I, I admit that but I think we're gonna but so at a, then I'd be in the position
2: of saying to Phoebe and to you uh, I your plan options are only these. And you'd say, well, we hate, though. We don't like those plan options. They're not as good as the ones we used to have. And I'd say, well, it's too bad the federal government gave me money.
1: Yes, you could blame it on the federal government. Okay. So yeah. that's one, one way to look at it. It's probably a pretty powerful tool. Yeah. Secondly, there's a lot of people, a lot of employers out there that are not offering that, you know, they're not offering any choices anyway. They're just saying here yeah. to the workers, here's what you got. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And so this would allow a little bit more competition and choice, at the employee level and not so much the employer just picking everything for everybody.
2: So listeners, you're getting that the Jim is about bringing these market competition principles and, and ideas into a government controlled healthcare system in a way that drives costs down and, and contributes to efficiencies. And you've accomplished some in your career and you, you you have a goal for five more over the next three or four years.
1: Yeah, well, we got a, we got a long way to go, but that gives us stuff to work on for sure.
2: So one of the things that I just want to ask one other question because we do have health care savings accounts here. Mm-hmm. And I think you say in your book that the HSAs did not lead to any price shopping um, uh, by consumers. Is,
1: is that correct? I would say any is a strong word. It is very minimal. It didn't have the effect people wanted it to have. Uh, it did lead consumers with HSAs to forego some care. There's lots of studies showing that for while they were still in their larger deductibles, okay? Because with HSAs, you also got higher deductibles. When they're in those larger deductibles, a lot of people would say, I don't need this or I don't need that. And they just wouldn't get any care. And they'd save the, the, the balance the of the balance. HSAs. Yes, exactly. Which made them
2: think more about it. It made them, them think more. Because their, their money they're yes. going to be spending. So
1: it had that, and you know, I think in on balance, that was probably a good thing. A lot of people complain about that. They say, well, they're also foregoing maybe some beneficial care. Yeah. Okay. So there's studies kind of on both sides of that question. But did they go and, you know, pick up the tool and say, you know, I do need this and I'm going to pick the one that costs, you know, $120 instead of the one that costs $220 not so much. They, they haven't done that very much yet.
2: So another area that you talk about in the book, is in an area that I got excited about, is this, these APCDs. <laughs> can tell us about the APCDs. This is a new thing, right? Relatively new, and you think has some potential.
1: Yeah, to some degree. I mean, that uh, these are state-based all-payer claims databases. What does that mean? It basically means that you tell the insurance plans, send us all the billing data that's coming in your system, Uh, So that we can start doing comparisons of who's costing more and who's costing less based on real data, real claims being adjudicated. And who's looking at these? Uh, well, then they use that and aggregate it up, and they can create some dashboards and data systems to say to signal to everybody: well, that's a high-priced hospital. You know, we have an APCD, but and it journalists, tells us you journalists. Can yes, you look at it, of and, course. And, and yes, write
2: reports about how absolutely some healthcare providers ripping off a whole community. That's absolutely,
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, remember, also we have oncoming online now lots of pricing disclosure requirements for hospitals and other things. So, independent of the APCDs, you got hospital dumping huge amounts of data out into the public domain on their websites, that's all now being scooped up by data companies, okay? And they're analyzing it independently of these states, okay? So you got private companies now in the same business based on the data that the hospitals are now required not just to put into the state APCDs, but just out in the public domain generally. But you surprised me because
2: you you disclosed that not all states have APCDs. No. So they they have to choose to do it. They do. And first of all, wouldn't you advise a state to do it? I
1: would, yeah, absolutely. And, and
2: why are only 16 years, it's like less yeah, it than 20?
1: It's like anything else. It takes a little bit of work, you know. you got to set up the thing, set up a little agency to kind of manage and run it, get the you data. You know what my
2: suspicion on it is, don't you?
1: Well, I'm sure the insurers lobby against
2: (laughs) it. I mean, that healthcare industry—it doesn't—it gets you no matter how hard you try. Yeah, it's a big. It's such a common sense thing to 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 collect that those claims data and show and let people see where the costs are. But but you're right. The interests the interests would want to not allow a state to do it. I would. I wish you'd give me a list of the states that have them and don't have them. I'll get I that will. For you it, later. It's, it's, it's,
1: it's, That's the easy. I wonder thing if to there's do. a
2: political lesson to be learned there. We'll have to see. Yeah. Is it red or blue? Probably probably doesn't break down.
1: Uh yeah. I mean you know some big players in it are uh, New Hampshire has a, a well known one and that's, yeah, that's kind of a frugal. mixed state. You yeah. Know, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, there are smart several, shoppers, Yeah, some, some big states, <laughs> That's some right. small states that have it.
2: Um, okay. So, uh, Phoebe, you gotta have some question in this, in this yeah, discussion.
0: I definitely have some questions. I'm curious for, I mean, back to the second point on kind of price transparency and cost transparency. I'm curious how standardized these things can be. Like, is it not the case that like, how, how accurately can you bill how much a certain surgery is always going to cost? it seems like there could be complications. There could be hospitals serving different populations that have different health risks. Um, how much of that is kind of, you know, malpractice or overcharging or being too exorbitant? And how much of it is just that these things really do vary in cost?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's a very good question. I think the um, healthcare is like anything else. And when there's a high volume, a lot of get, it gets averaged out pretty well, you know? Mm-hmm. So that if you have a surgeon that's performing the same three or four or five different types of surgeries, uh, you know, yeah, they're going to get a patient here or there that required a little extra or maybe a little less than average. Um, But they can still probably come up with a price that sort of hits the sweet spot of, on average, across all their patient population, will allow them to appropriately provide the care each of them need. Now, Mm -hmm. every once in a while, you're going to have a real outlier, someone who just, you know, something happened and went terribly wrong, and not, you know, from the, I'm not saying from malpractice, but just because some other complication occurred. And um, you, can, you can have a kickout provision. If some, something really is obviously not the norm and it's a 1% outlier, um, you can go back into a, a different way of paying for that service. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that doesn't mean the other 99% needs to all follow fee-for-service. You mm-hmm. could come to right. a fixed price for most of the folks. I mean, there are lots of people in this country getting joint replacement surgery. And it's a high volume uh, business, yeah. And you can probably ones. get to, yeah standardized. <laughs> yeah. You can get to a fixed price for that mm-hmm. pretty easily.
2: So I've got I've got a few more here, but I want to uh, uh, make sure Phoebe you have an opportunity. But mm-hmm. but just let's do the one other sort of um, position that may be viewed as ironic for those who are observing the AI scholarship and. And that is that you are a big believer in, in universal enrollment and automatic enrollment. So tell us why you believe in that and how you think that could be implemented.
1: Well, basically, this starts from the premise that uh, everybody should have health insurance, right? So there's a little bit of talk sometimes about saying, well, it's not that valuable. Um, you know, people, you know, a lot of studies show that having health insurance isn't always super strongly correlated with, uh, getting better services than you would have anyway, you know, that kind of thing. And I think a lot of that is sort of not, not really play out in, when, in the real world, number one, and also even from empirical evidence. If you have health insurance, it, it's correlated fairly strongly now across a lot of years with improved health outcomes, mainly because people don't wait. So they, they, if you have health insurance and something start to feel not right, you're more likely to attend to it. That's number one. Number two, your mental health suffers if you're always worried about what's going to happen to your health. And so there's a lot of studies showing that even just provision of health services improves people's mental health, which, you know, as we all know, is inter, you know, can be very closely related to physical health. So I, I, I just start from the premise that th- those... And then there's the political fact. If we have a, you know, a talking point on the other side saying, hey, we still got 30 million uninsured people. What are the odds that you end up with another government program that just sort of universalizes everything, okay? So if we want to avoid that, I think we ought to go through the steps necessary to make sure that people get health insurance just through the current channels. Now, the other big point is lots of the uninsured, about 80% of them, are already covered by something if they chose to sign up for it, okay? Or they they got sick and went to the hospital, they'd be enrolled. They would be enrolled, absolutely. That's one
2: of the myths is that,
1: not having coverage
2: well, does not mean you don't get your coverage paid for when you go in and get enrolled.
1: Mostly for Medicaid. I know, and chip. Okay, I know, but yeah. that's the safety net. That is the safety net, yes. But for private health insurance, not as much. But yeah, you're right. If you are eligible for Medicaid and you interact with the health system, usually they'll find that out and put you in the program. Oh, they darn right they'll find out. <laughs> exactly. That's the only way they get paid. It's the only way they get paid, exactly, yeah. So There's anyway. a market incentive. <laughs> yeah, so my, my view is basically that uh, we ought to be doing what we can to make it easier for people that are already eligible for something to get signed up so that they, A, know they are covered, and, B, are not counted as uninsured kind of – Slightly but we've done a lot to make way.
2: Medicaid enrollment very easy. So, how would you make it even more easy? Well, Did I think you just sort of automatically enroll them, regardless where they come into an office or fill an application. That's what I'm trying to get at. Are you just going to. Yeah.
1: I think we got to go to a system that does a quick look back at last year's income as filed through the income tax system and sort people very quickly. Were you eligible based on last year's income for Medicaid or maybe for premium subsidies under the exchanges that are operating in the cis states? Um, And that's where the most of the folks are, or CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and just put them into those programs pretty quickly based on their tax filing. And that would, again, that's another one of these things that people, all these things
2: want to, I mean, I'm teasing you a little bit, but the IRS gets a lot of jobs. You know, they they were responsible for the welfare checks during the COVID and the, the refundable tax credits are, and so this is another one, you'd need them to help you determine
1: this one, oh, yes, they, that. and they certainly don't want this work, but basically it would require them to be data sharers with the states. The states would be the ones who would be putting them into the plans. So it would really be a heavier lift for the states, but they'd need a little bit of assistance from the IRS to, to make sure that everybody had clean income tax data as quickly as possible so that they could then easily figure out who was eligible and put them into the plans.
2: So when we had you here last, we made you take us through the three big buckets of health care coverage, Medicaid, Medicare and employer provided health insurance. We're not going to make you do that again. <laughs> but in the book, you really do describe the three very well. And and you and I, I find a tone in your in your chapter on employer provided health insurance where it, it's you don't you don't seem to like it as much, even though most Americans are in employer provided health insurance. And it's the least it's the it's the it doesn't cost the government as much as Medicare and Medicaid does. So it's it's my favorite. And also, you don't get employer provided health insurance unless you work. work. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask you and you sort of say the drop in employer, the percentage of the U.S. population under age 65 with employer supplied health insurance has dropped from 67 percent in 1998 to 58% in 2018. And you sort of schluff that off. But that's a pretty big drop. At the same time, I would point out that Nick Eberstadt would tell us all the time that um, workforce participation and labor force participation was dropping. And I just want to ask, Is there been a, a, a reduction in the work incentive that comes with the, the idea that you can't get health insurance unless you go to work?
1: Yeah, I think there is probably some aspect of that there. The way we've made it easier for people to get health insurance through the exchange system, where their income is modest and they can still get premium subsidies from the federal government and get enrolled into private coverage through that, or Medicaid, Medicaid eligibility is vastly increased as you know in terms of who's eligible for it, particularly through the Affordable Care Act. But even before the Affordable Care Act, lots of people became eligible for Medicaid under a lot of a lot of different provisions. So public provision has gone up and that has made it less of an urgency to, you know, get in an employer system so you can get, you know, get the get a job so you can get the employer based health care. Now, right. having said that, I'm very much for obviously we need strong work incentives across the board in a lot of public policy areas. Um, and you know this is coming. There's a but here, though. But it, you know, what do you do if someone, if it, a the employer system isn't offered to everybody, and they work a lot of small employers don't offer it. Okay, and so you need to have some alternative way for people to get coverage, and this the interface between the two that creates this tension that you're talking about. You know, how generous do you make the one versus how generous do you make the other? My complaint with the employer-based system, I I like it. I'm, you know, I think it should be retained. It's a big avenue through which private insurance is given to the public, okay? So it's an efficient way of doing that. Its problem is it lacks discipline, okay? It needs more discipline. It needs more cost discipline because the more you pay in health, one of our big problems in this country is people say wages have stagnated. They haven't gone up as much in the last quarter century, um, and that's caused all kinds of political problems in this country. Well, a big reason that wages haven't gone up as fast is they're getting compensated more and more in health care. That's been shown in study after study yes, after yes. study.
2: You, it's, there's no question. You, the people have, employers have looked at the full package for their employees and they've thought, what do our employees need most? What, what, what can I get them the most? And employees have wanted health insurance as well as wages. And my view is that the fact that their compensation, I look at the total compensation. If you look at the total compensation, it hasn't it has risen, mostly in the cost of providing health insurance. But remember, there's
1: a tax incentive. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know, I know, I know you know. don't like to talk about this. No, it, no, I know. <laughs> but remember that taxes matter. Yes, yes, I do. But Incentives I wanted matter. to point out to and one the is Phoebe, taxed and one at is some not.
2: point maybe never, but possibly mm-hmm. Phoebe will. You know, maybe maybe she'll find a partner in life and, and, and oh, no. I wanna just say Thought this was this. one
0: safe episode yes, we didn't yes. have to talk about we've that. We've never done it. we've
2: <laughs> never really done it. This is the only time we've done it explicitly. But the but in her life, when she and whoever she's partnered with are looking at their their job situations, mm-hmm. this is one place that'll be a, a, a very strong incentive that both one or both of them work absolutely the, uh, the only thing my wife ever said to me about my career was you can't stop working because we need health insurance <laughs> and i mean and i think that's a good incentive to get health insurance through work um and 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 then we the, you don't talk about this in the book but now we're going to go to things you didn't talk about because you cover <laughs> everything beautifully um uh, really and i really recommend the book health u.s health policy and market reforms in introduction this is the primer this is the primer for now, and it will be the primer for the next twenty months, and it's great. But um, the 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 there are two things you didn't talk about, and that was quality. I don't think you there's a word in this about the better whether the quality of healthcare is good or bad in Medicare, Medicaid, or the health, private health insurance world. What's your just quick take on that?
1: The U.S. provides in in many many cases the best quality healthcare in the world. It's it's mired in rules and dysfunction that kind of makes it hard to find sometimes. But um, we have the best array of fantastic institutions that can take care of people very very well, you know. And the across getting, the
2: three programs, uh, the yeah, three ways, even of
1: even it. even even through Medicare and Medicaid. Okay, yes. yes, and, and uh, of course through Medicare and Medicaid.
2: So it costs a lot, a lot, a lot. And it it's costs a lot, a
1: lot. And it's undisciplined, but we have excellent. We have the. World-class physicians, the best-trained physicians, the best medical care institutions. We have a lot sophisticated of sophisticated
2: technology. We have
1: lots of people coming from around the world to get healthcare here. I love that pro America. Okay? Pro America. No, more it is. It that. is. It can it can't be fantastic, but it is <laughs> set up in a system that makes it l- operated a sub sub below what it should be.
2: Okay, so so we have got this complicated way to pay for it, which we completely agree with, and you're going to change and fix. We, and we're all for <laughs> that. We have this great quality which we we love and and admire, Um, what about outcomes? We're not the healthiest people in the world.
1: No. Uh, And, you know, there's lots of things going on there. There's a lot of people that like to look at studies that show, well, you know, we have, uh, you know, shorter lifespans than other countries. And, of course, that's true. And, you know, this outcome is not as good as that, you know, on here or there, these metrics. But we have lots of things that spill into health metrics, health outcome metrics, that are really not directly related to how we organize our hospitals and physicians and how we and pay for the quality of our nurses and doctors. Yeah, it's not very much related to that. Now, it can be diet, related. Are you talking about diet? It's You're diet. Cigarette smoking. It's social problems. Alcohol, drugs. Yeah, it's other social problems. It could be, you know, even Single things, parenthood. Even. even Weak families. Right, it's yep. even not having trauma. Dinner. How much trauma we have in right. our emergency rooms is a right. big thing, okay, that's related to lots of social questions, including traffic. You know, we have a very high incidence of, of traffic accidents relative to the rest of the world that end up in the emergency room department system in this country. So all of that factors into all of this. Now, having said all that, we don't make it easy enough for people to get primary and preventative care. So one thing other countries do better because they have totally run systems by the government is they just make the, the routine stuff completely easy and free. So, if you need to, you know, you're not feeling well, you can go see somebody, you know, or you're, you know, whatever. There's a lot of different things going on there. Um, you have a chronic condition and you need it attended to. You know, you can usually go see somebody pretty easily. It's the regular doctor office kind of stuff. So, you're saying that would help? It would help with, a little bit. It will outcomes. not solve the whole problem. Okay. But we right. still require you to pay, you know, $25 every time you go see a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a hindrance to some people. They say, well, I don't need to go. I'm not going to go. In other countries, it's literally free. Mm -hmm. And you can call that day and say, my child's sick and bring them in and there's no paper involved. There's no insurance claim. There's no nothing. The hassle is much lower. And so the primary and preventative side of it in the United States is a hindrance to better outcomes. Mm -hmm. I want to say one other thing about quality. I don't want the listeners to think that I'm, you know, kind of got this rosy view of American healthcare on the quality side. There's lots of there's a lot of long reports, you know, showing there's poor quality under some circumstances in the United States. I was trying to say that at our best, we have the best in the world. Mm -hmm. okay? Okay. But there's still some quality problems in the United
2: States. And on the health outcomes, are you, are you, are you, it's not something you write about often. Is it because you oppose it or it's just, you just haven't had time to think about it. Are you opposed to efforts by government to promote greater healthy habits? to lead to better outcomes in health or or what?
1: Where are you on that? I'm very much in favor of that, actually, yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a little bit different kind of policy domain. I'm trying to get the economics of paying and paying for health care right. And that's been my focus for quite a while. Getting the economics of paying for health care right. Mm-hmm. That's you know? a big job. And it's a big job, yeah, yeah. yeah. And but, I mean, uh, separately from that, you could say it would help if someone just said, you know what, we're going to start looking at, dietary questions, you know, really more seriously. What do we need to do in this country to try to m- move it in a, you know, a better direction? And there are a few things that probably could work. Um, but they are, like everything else, they end up in, you know, big fights politically. And so you have to kind of figure so out- So last cool
2: question. So you, you we talked about the policy, the good ideas. I want to talk about your strategy. You, you've you been an OMB official. You've advised congressmen and senators and, and members of the House of Representatives. You've been at AI for a while. You've written about these issues. You're the most- Respected expert on these issues on capital, in my opinion, without question. So, looking forward, or just give our listeners a sense of what's your strategy to make any of these ideas become policy. How? What do you count? What do you want Phoebe to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What are you gonna do? How do you go about making these ideas become law?
1: Well, I think you gotta give people that are involved in the policy process bite-sized ideas that they can think about and digest. Big enough so that it'll make a difference, but not so big that they walk away saying I'm just replace and repeal. No (laughs) Well repeal and replace was too big. That's another long (laughs) We got a whole other podcast on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, premium sports seems like it's this daunting idea in Medicare, right? But it's been percolating around for literally to 25 years, okay, mm-hmm. three yeah. decades. and Now maybe the, it's time. Under the right circumstances, you're going to get even some Democrats to say, you know, this whole system is kind of messed up. We have a huge Medicare Advantage component in, in Medicare already. Why aren't we rationalizing that? How do we rationalize it? And the way to rationalize it is premium support. Mm-hmm. It's a way of getting more discipline, and it wouldn't destroy traditional Medicare. Traditional Medicare might do very well mm-hmm. under the right kind of reform, And so you have to kind of work with some Democrats. I would say another thing here about the book, I'm not big on the idea of uh, one side or the other trying to achieve total victory here. This is a big health system. The whole country has to use it, Democrats and Republicans. (laughs) And so it'd be better to get to a system where we all kind of say, okay, this is striking the right public-private balance. Okay, Mm -hmm. This has got enough protection so people aren't so worried. But not so rigid and controlled by the government that makes another another group of people worried, and so you got to kind of you know figure out if there's a way to get to a good consensus there.
2: So it uh, okay. So you know, there's build across the aisle, Absolutely. talk to people, give them something they can. Don't try to be a comprehensive
1: solution that's too large, and and chip away and work with chip away. I mean, uh, if if you had a, a a different set of rules and someone said let's combine automatic enrollment where more people got coverage with some disciplining ideas on price transparency, on premium support. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might start to build a coalition that said we could pass a bill that was, you know, it would, would make a material difference.
2: Now, last, I'm sorry, this is the last thing, because you do mention it in passing and you kind of dismiss it. But, um, and this is a more, I think you, you identified it as a more democratic idea that comes from members of the House and Senate on the other side of the aisle. And that is just price, price reductions. Price regulation. Price regulation. Price controls. Price controls. And so, what is the status of price controls in the healthcare world? Well,
1: I think if you don't do some of the ideas that I've tried to push in this book, the other big avenue, the one that's got more, li- frankly, it's more likely to occur. I mean, let's be honest, is that the Democrats kind of get enough political power at some point and they say, you know what? Forget all this market mumbo jumbo. Let's just regulate it even more. And they take the final big step, which they haven't been able to do yet, but they want to do, which is to say, essentially, let's take what Medicare does in terms of regulating how we pay for doctors and hospitals and apply it to everybody one way or another. There are a lot of different ways you might go about that. And uh, that push has started. I mean, they're, they're working on it.
2: But, but so, that, in effect, is they would pay Medicare prices. They require everybody to pay Medicare prices. Correct. And
1: And, you know, it would be it would be in a certain way very popular with the public. Let's be honest, right? If if you if you went to the public and said, you know what, this whole system's kind of problematic. What if the government just said, hospitals, you can do kind of what you want, but you can't charge more than Medicare? Yeah. Mm -hmm. People say, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea, right? And so, but once you did that, then of course the government would be basically the decider of pricing for the entire health system. Mm-hmm.
2: And just for our listeners, remind us Medicare reimbursement rates in relation to Medicaid reimbursement
1: rates. Medicare would be probably about Medicaid would be about 80%, 70% of, mm-hmm. of Medicare.
2: So yeah. the even worse thing if they, if they said, we're they won't reimburse-
1: do that because that would cause even, they, that they know that would cause a rupture with the provider community. So they, they can't, they know that's a, like that, that's too far. In fact, they want to raise pricing in Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Phoebe, you get all you want. (laughs) Yeah. Jim,
2: thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.